chillin' and a you will hear about the eliminating of the negative and a accent on a positive. And gather round me, chillin', if you're willing, and sit tight while I start reviewing the attitude of doing right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird and Friends. This podcast is sponsored by Four Data, a Canberra-based company that is committed to ensuring business owners have reliable and professional IT services. I'm a client of Four Data. I use their website hosting services, and I'm also reducing my email spam with their secure email hosting service. As a special offer to the Joyful Frugalista podcaster listeners, 4Data will provide, wherever you are, website hosting at $12 a month and up to two hours initial free migration service, valued at $300. Find them online at number 4data.com.au. 4Data, they fix IT. Hello, Frugalistas, and welcome. Today, I have a very special guest, who comes all the way from across the country, and that being from Western Australia. Welcome, Lacey. Thanks for having me, Serena. Thank you so much for agreeing to be my guest. Lacey Filipich is author of Money School, Become Financially Independent and Reclaim Your Life. She and her mother founded Money School in 2010 to provide online training for adults and kids to learn more about money. We were chatting just before about how there wasn't a lot of financial literacy training back in 2010, so she's somewhat of a pioneer in that space. Lacey also established Makers Kids Club in 2017 to help teach children money skills through enterprise. Lacey, you're doing some amazing things, and amongst all of this, you have a really big event coming up. Yes, I do, and I'm so delighted you can be part of it as well, Serena. It's called The Money Debates. And I know we've had a bit of a chat about this before via email. I really like the idea that there's no one way to do everything. You know, there's Mm. no recipe. You must do it this way, follow these steps exactly. And I find people sometimes think there should be a recipe. I know. What we're trying to do with money debates, yeah, we're trying to get people to think beyond that recipe idea and to look at both sides of the story. Maybe there's more than two sides to each story. Some of the common points of contention, which don't have like clear mathematical answers. So I think we can all agree, like, you have to save. Yes. That's pretty compulsory. But should you put money into voluntary superannuation contributions? Is cash a human right? Those sorts of things that don't have a maths answer, that are much more based on personal values and beliefs and what's right for you right now in your life and your family, that kind of thing. That's what we're looking at with money debate. So pulling apart all these fascinating issues and getting people like yourself who are financial educators, who've been through investing, saving, all those kinds of things to talk about it from their perspectives and really hash out those interesting topics that cause a bit of contention. Thank you for explaining that. And it is going to be really fascinating. And like you said, there really is like one, you know, straight answer. There are so many variables. And I think it's a bit like a lot of cookie cutter advice. Like everyone says, you should do this. You should have superannuation. You should invest this way. You should set up your bank accounts this way. You should have your bank accounts in a certain bank. But it's often not that easy, is it? That's right. And I think it really depends on your circumstances. Like I think about what I made as my first really important financial decisions when I was 19. Here I am now 38. I would make very different decisions now. And it's not that the recipe is wrong. It's not that what I did when I was 19 is wrong. It's that what is right for me now is very different to what was right for me back then. 
And also we're in a different economy. We're in a different stage of life. My priorities are different. I've got children now. It's very hard for anyone to say, here's an absolute rule, and then you just stick to it. So I think always being conscious of your options, making active decisions is really positive. And not accepting that there's only one way to do everything. I think a few people would like that to be true. We'd love it to be the fact that everyone can just follow the same recipe, but you'll get a better result if you think about it for your own context. Thank you. Very wise advice. And we were talking before because both of us have the same alma mater, that is we both went to the University of Queensland. Different times though, I think I'm a bit older, a fair bit older actually. But reflecting on my university days, my financial priorities were quite different. And specifically, I had a dream of studying in China. So I I deferred my studies, saved, got a bank loan for the rest and took myself off to Beijing for a year. Now that I'm a mother with two children and remarried and I'm at a different stage of my career, like that's not my priority anymore. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And these things are supposed to change and our priorities are supposed to change and we are supposed to adapt. So yeah, what's working for you even today might not work for you in 12 months. So that's a really important thing to know that that's okay, that you don't have to have that same result. And how cool that you're able to reflect on that experience and, and that you've had that great <laughs> opportunity when you were young and a bit more carefree and it was a really good time for those decisions. Whereas today, you know, would we want to go to China with two kids? I don't know. I, I've got two small ones. I don't think I'm taking that well. Exactly. Even if there wasn't COVID and a pandemic to worry about. <laughs> I could think of better ways to spend my money at the moment. Well, it's just different. And, you know, studying with young children is just different. Yeah. Some people do do that, but it is it yeah. is harder to, you have to be yeah. very careful about how you manage your time to balance your, your family and, and, and your study life. But it was funny, in my first marriage, we were very much on the saving and investing path and it became excessively frugal, or at least I did, to do that. And I remember going back to Brisbane on a holiday and how I could remember so many restaurants, particularly in, in the CBD in Brisbane, because, you know, I'd had my university party days. Oh, yeah. I was still frugal, don't get me wrong, but socialising is so important when you're young. Totally. Especially in Bris Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. It is a high priority. <laughs> well, yes, absolutely. And at university too. We used to joke that it was compulsory to be able to drink beer. If you didn't drink beer, you weren't allowed to graduate from engineering, <laughs> so you had to go to the pub. It was, it was almost considered like a mandatory thing. One of the most famous lecturers in our department was famous because he managed to beat Bob Hawke in a beer skull competition. Wow. Still held the record till he died. Pretty impressive bloke. But that's the sort of thing that gets you a family amongst your colleagues at work and your fellow students is having that social time. So you do have to you prioritize. Do have to prioritize. I don't feel like I missed out too much. But yeah, it is, it's different when you're a student too, because you're, you're aiming for those cheap nights. They used to have it uh, you would remember the Royal Exchange Hotel, I was Hotel, just the thinking RE about the RE. It was a bit yeah. of a post-exam <laughs> ritual. Everyone would be packed into the RE if you could get in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, and they used to do these amazing, because I, you know, Queenslander, Bundaberg rum, kind of like mother's milk. They used to do these amazing jugs of Bundaberg rum for like $6 for like five shots, which is probably highly illegal, relatively speaking, these days <laughs> for price to alcohol content. But that was, you know, that was our idea of a good time. And engineers are a pretty frugal bunch inherently too. We do like a good deal when it comes to going out on the town, that's for sure. Well, I was a law <laughs> student at the same university and so we were a little bit more snobby. So we probably had to actually spend more <laughs> when we were going out, which probably explains why I can remember more restaurants in the RE. I have been to the RE and I have been to the yeah. regatta, but they, they weren't my stamping grounds as much. But it was interesting to reflect, like I said, when I was going through this frugal phase, I would sort of thought about, oh, all this money I wasted. And I was almost feeling self-righteous about this. Well, I don't waste money now. I don't go out. 
But it is a balance. And I think you do have different times in your life when you do things differently. Like when you've got kids, it's a lot harder to go out and drink Mm. um, cheap Bundy rum at the RE. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it's not how I spend my time now, that's for sure. I prefer a nice bottle of wine. But it is that that sense of you can pick a few things I've found. I think there's a tendency for people, and this is what I interpret from the fire community often, this sense that you do have to live like a monk and that wasteful spending is just, you know, out completely. Mm. I think it's how you define waste as well. If you've got enjoyment from those restaurants and those sorts of things, then go for it. I get enjoyment from nice wine and nice food. I don't even look at my grocery bill and my eating out bill. That's like sequestered. I don't even think about it because I get so much happiness out of it that I think, well, why would I beat myself up over spending on that? But I do watch spending in the other areas. You can't go back and change what you did in the past, but so long as you've got lots of enjoyment out of it and value for your money, I think it's not a bad thing. And if you change priorities later, then so be it. Well, yes, and I was, like I said, I was still very frugal. I had very frugal accommodation I was living in. I didn't have a car. I didn't get my driver's licence until I was 31. Oh, wow. Who always had part-time jobs. It was all different things. And actually, I didn't really go out as much as other people, but it is good to reflect about how you do need a balance between your your social life and yeah. things you do enjoy mm. versus your, your long-term goals. And it sounds like you've done that really well. Yeah, I have been very fortunate. I think it's a meeting of really good timing and, and lots of opportunity and personal ambition probably. I have been very fortunate to have really good guidance early in my life and just a few seeds planted that got me excited about saving and compounding which is what led to me starting investing when I was in my second year of uni and all my lecturers and my fellow students thought I was insane buying a property. <laughs> but I'm so glad I did it. And they're probably really annoyed with themselves that they didn't do the same thing because the property boom came along a couple of years later. I was just very fortunate with my timing with that. But yeah, it was a case of I was used to living like a student and I didn't really ramp up my spending much when I got a full-time job after study. So I had lots of extra money and I ploughed most of it into investing. Still had lots of fun, but just didn't go and buy the fancy car or the fancy clothes or anything, which is probably also because I was wearing hard yakka to work every day working in the mines. <laughs> so you don't need nice clothes and you inherently look unattractive in hard yakka. So you don't have to worry about how you look. I had a few advantages in that respect. But yeah, I guess as I've gotten older, I have seen not so much that I had a goal of being financially independent by a certain age, but that I just wanted to accumulate assets. And then one day that would be enough. And I didn't know how long it would be, but I was very happy to have gotten there in my early 30s. Pretty pretty good timing and um, very fortunate that I was at, at that point in the economy when I could really make a lot of money from my equity and growth quickly. Mm. Well, there's two things I want to backtrack to there. And one is, how on earth did you get a loan as a university student in second year? And how did you get from Bris Vegas to a mine? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're both good stories. So the first one about the bank. Now, when you think about at the moment, the, the rigmarole you'd have to go through to get a loan at the bank, because we hadn't had the GFC by then, it was much less of a big deal. You needed two months of pay slips. And as an engineer, you had to do paid work experience. It was compulsory. You couldn't graduate unless you did it. And you got paid like an engineer for your work experience. So I timed the loan application after having had two months of working as a, a vacation student, but it doesn't say that on your pay slip, it just says working as an engineer. So it's a little bit sneaky, <laughs> number one. But I had a proof of an income. And so long as you can afford it, they don't care. I had a, a couple of other things that were on my side. One was the property was severely underpriced versus its value. So it was it, it was valued at about 130000 and I got it for 103.5. Wow. And that was because it had been sitting on the market for a long time. 
and it was hideous. Like, I mean, properly hideous, like brown ceilings, brown walls, brown floors. It stank. Like, I cried when I got the keys and went in and went, oh, my God, it's filthy. <laughs> but it was, I'm really glad I did it because we were able to cosmetically make it look much more attractive. My dad's a builder. He helped me tile. I lost my fingertip doing grout, <sighs> that sort of stuff. But we were pretty frugal in how we renovated it. But that that was how I um, I was able to convince the bank that it was a good investment because, of course, they were going to give me a loan. And, you know, they, they look at that loan ratio. They knew that if they had to sell it because I couldn't meet payments, they would easily cover the mortgage. I also had a really sizable deposit, which was owed to me having worked all through high school. And also my grandparents had gifted money to my mother as part of their strategy for still getting the pension. And so it came as like a forward inheritance, about eight grand it was which made a huge difference, of course. So, yeah, between the first homeowner's grant, my savings, my money, which was in a Rothschild investment as well, and my grandparents' for gift, I ended up with a deposit of about 30 grand, which is huge. Yeah, it is huge. Out of the 1035, yeah. So, uh, yeah, and that was a lot of it was uh, spending so much time working through high school as well. Lots of things came together, lots of benefits, and I'm very grateful for the help that my family gave me there, but it meant that I could get the loan without a guarantor. It also helped one other sneaky thing that I knew the bank manager through my friend who I went to school with was actually dating <laughs> male friend. Using all the connections, <laughs> so, you everything. Yeah. So I asked Mikey, hey, Mikey, hypothetically would this work? And he was like, yeah, you easily meet the criteria. And there wasn't anything that we had to fake or anything, but it was really good to have him as a sounding board. I think a lot of people, when you go to the bank, are worried what the bank manager is going to say. And I didn't want to go through a broker. I didn't want to have that experience first. I was really curious about how the whole process worked and I didn't want anyone to do it for me because mm-hmm. I'm stubborn. Um, and, yeah, so, but it was really good to have him as a sounding board. He didn't actually manage the loan or anything. I applied elsewhere, but it was really good to have his input as well. Just gave me a bit more confidence that I had something that was legitimate. So that's how I ended up with a loan at, at 19 years old. Um, but the difference was the mortgage was $110 a week and I could rent out the second room for $90 a week. So compared to on at that time, you know, sort of 2001, people were renting a room in a share house for about $100 mm-hmm. a week. So it really wasn't that much of a difference. You know, it, it was 5.1% interest rates, which today looks laughable, you know, but it was considered really low then. But that's, yeah, that's how I got through the loan the first time. And thank goodness I did because I got in before that boom. And then, um, yeah, spent two years living there. But just going back to that, you kind of take for granted or underplay perhaps these savings that you've got and these savings that you have been forward inherited or that you've earned. But, you know, a lot of students do have money, but they drink it all away. And it is so easy when all your friends are going out and they're all doing that and they're all shouting rounds and you're all eating out or drinking out. Well done you to have the self-discipline to keep your money together as a deposit for a house. Yeah, I'm lucky that I had that behavioural sort of thing drilled into me quite young. My mum talked to me about saving quite young and compounding quite young. So since I was 10, I've saved half of every dollar I've ever earned, whether it was birthday gifts or 21st gifts or money that I made from my own little businesses that I started when I was a kid or from part-time work because I used to do artistic gymnastics coaching and before and after school care and vacation care from ages 14 to 19 and they paid really well but it's just been a habit of mine every dollar that came in 50% of it went to saving and I didn't look at it so I just lived on what was left and I think it's that hard thing when you when you get a big chunk of cash if it's in an account that you can access it's really tempting so how can you remove the temptation because I I do get tempted I look at the account balance go oh look I can spend that when it's hidden in an account and this is before the days of online banking Everything was, you had to go into the bank to do your deposits and fill out slips and things like that. It was a lot harder to get your money out. And I think that really helped me just sequester that money and not really think about Mm. it. And I distracted you there. You were about to talk about the story about how you ended up on a mine. Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
chemical engineers, I studied chemical engineering, very typically end up in oil and gas. And that was certainly where most of my colleagues went or they went into wastewater. I had worked at BP Refinery in Brisbane, which is now shut down, as one of my vacation placements. I tried lots of different vacation work because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I found oil and gas really boring. (laughs) (laughs) I just wasn't allowed to do anything. And it was going to take like 20 years to build up enough experience where they'd let you like test things or trial things. And I applied for another job with what was called Western Mining Corporation, WMC. Very popular company in Australia. Mm -hmm. Lots of people have ended up there. They flew me over to Kalgoorlie, which I couldn't have placed on a map if you had asked me. I was like, what is this? And I had been working at Mount Isa for a shutdown and they were like, ooh, that's the red light district of Australia because it's got brothels and skimpy bars and all that stuff. And having been a good girl that went to a nice private school and UQ and didn't go to skimpy bars, I was like, what is this? And it was fascinating and a really interesting town and nice camaraderie. And so I ended up moving over there because it was much less boring than oil and gas. (laughs) So that was a bit of a shock to my family. moving 4,000 kilometres away. A lot more exciting, a lot more red light than oil and gas. Yeah, yeah, it was good. And with mining, I mean, there's still lots of chemical processes where you can't change things, but it is much more interactive. You can make a change to a process and see what happens to it. Whereas with oil and gas, it's so refined, so risk averse, and it has to be that you can't make changes easily. Whereas I guess you get a little bit more of that cowboy feeling in mining, or at least you used to because the risks associated with the handling of the product are less comparably than to something that might explode like you would get at an oil and gas plant. Yeah, I had a lot more fun. And going to Kalgoorlie, regional town, average age was 29 in the town and ridiculous quantity of men versus women. So I didn't pay for many drinks. (laughs) So that was fun. And uh, and an eye-opener. But, yeah, I'm really glad I had the opportunity. And I've really enjoyed working in mining. It's been fantastic. And I like actually being from the inside even with an environmental bent of not wanting to damage the earth, people have got to be inside the companies agitating for change. And I was lucky that I was able to take on that role in the companies that I work for, which is great. Fabulous. And obviously you don't work in mining anymore because you have these new ventures. (laughs) Yeah, I still occasionally do a consulting role. And part of that is risk mitigation. Because I've done that engineering study and your qualification doesn't actually lapse, but it does help to keep up. I do occasionally do a contract, but yeah, there was a five-year gap from when I became financially independent till I took my first contract. And now sort of every two years, I'll do sort of three or four months of part-time consulting just to keep my finger in it, basically, so that I don't lose all that network or that qualification, just in case everything falls apart one day and I need to go back to full-time work. I'd hate to have to study again. <laughs> so trying to keep it up. <laughs> well, this is important because a lot of people think that a criticism labelled against the financial independence retire early movement is that, well, okay, you retire well, what happens if there is a problem? Like what happens if you lose all your money, the stock market completely, I don't know, disintegrates? Not likely, but it could happen. Yeah. What is then your contingency plan? So it sounds like you have a very good contingency plan there. Yeah, and I think that's an engineering trait that gets built in. We spend a lot of time on risk management. I feel like the first five years of my career was all about risk management and it's just, it's infiltrated every part of my life. So yes, this is part of my risk management strategy. Should everything hit the fan, then I have got a backup. I can always earn money and my contacts haven't disappeared. And I guess I've seen that a lot now too. My daughter is seven. I have some friends who haven't worked for that whole period and they found it really hard to get back into work after a complete break for seven years. And I wanted to make sure I didn't have that if I ever decide to go back because eventually my children will be in school and if I get bored, (laughs) I've got lots of options then. Or if my businesses don't work out or if someone solves financial capability for Australia, then, you know, I can just pack up and I'll do something else. (laughs) 
Well, it's funny, when I left my full-time job last November, I had all these contingency plans and most of them completely went awry during COVID, but that was fine too. I bet. Um, The main contingency plan was that I'd saved up before I made this decision. That's worked quite well. Yeah, that's a fortunate one, right? It, it is It is good. Yeah, well done, Past Serena. Good work, Past Serena. Pat on the back. Yeah, it was a fortunate one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you never know. I know a lot of people talk about emergency funds. You have a different term for emergency funds. Oh, yeah, and this is actually owing to my engineering as well. I call it a buffer fund, and a buffer is a technical term in chemical engineering that um, gets used in reactions, but it's basically, it means the same thing. It's a nice, comfy cushion. To, to prevent the shock from hitting you too much if your income stops. So it's not meant to solve all your problems, but it's supposed to get you through a short-term period. You can land softly. So, yeah, I sort of the metaphorical image of a cushion is what I like people to have. An emergency fund works just as well. It's all the same thing. It's having some cash set aside that you can use as soon as you need it without having to sell anything so that you don't have to go into debt if your income suddenly dries up. And so where do you store your buffer? Mine's actually in an offset against a mortgage on my principal place of residence. So we have a principal place of residence. I hadn't bought a principal place of residence until my sixth property investment. I bought five investment properties and never really planned to live in them long term. I had lived in them for you know short periods to renovate or things like that, or the one that I spent two years in out of UQ. But then we bought our principal place of residence and we could have gone with just cash, but we decided we would get the mortgage because we were allowed and put it all in offset. I've got that cash sitting there in offset, so I'm not paying interest on the mortgage, which is a big thing. When it's your home, you don't get any tax advantages anyway, but the cash is sitting there, and then if I need it, I can whip it out pretty quickly. Mm. Well, it's funny. We had a similar strategy too. I took my long service leave and my annual leave owing when I left my work, and I put it all on the mortgage. Oddly, I haven't touched it since. Oh, good for you. Even despite the challenges. It's been a shocking year for us because we had bushfire haze for so long and that affected one of my Airbnbs. People just weren't coming through Canberra when we had the worst air quality in the world. Like people aren't really going to linger and come for a nice holiday because it's kind of hard. Exactly. Most of the national institutions were shut during that time. And of course, now we've had COVID. So of course, there hasn't been so much travel as well. Yeah. But despite all of that, like I haven't touched it. In fact, it's actually grown in terms of the amount of equity has grown and the mortgage has decreased. And it's been fascinating. Yeah, fantastic. And it's made me wonder about, even though I was always very frugal, how much mindless spending was associated with being in a workplace. (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of convenience spending happens, right? Like I can't be bothered cooking dinner or I don't want to pay for clean myself, I'll pay for a cleaner, that sort of thing. Mm. I think you get into that when your time is more finite, you do pay for convenience. It's just what you do. I've had exactly the same thing when I did mini retirement. So I would take breaks of sort of three to six months during my engineering career. I would notice my costs would drop anything from like a quarter to a third, just based on I wasn't being paying for convenience stuff. I wasn't paying for petrol or transport to get to work, wasn't paying for lunches and things like that, or any of those things that you buy just to get through because you deserve it because you've been working hard, you know? And I'm guessing that engineers don't have to spend quite as much on their clothing and attire to look good in an office. But in my case, because I used to work as a diplomat, so that was, or at least worked in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Mm. you did definitely have to have an appropriate corporate look. And that all costs money. It does, it doesn't it. And I tell you the difference between, I loved my Hardyaka uniform. It was just, no one looks good in it. You don't have to try to look good in it. So long as you're clean, clean clean-ish, you're fine. It was wonderful for the first several years of my career. And then, yeah, making the transition into consulting. I've just got the five dress routine where there's five dresses Monday to Friday and you just pull them out. And I don't think about it. And a lot of them came from Op Shop. (laughs) 
because again, I don't want to spend time thinking about that. I don't want to spend time to earn the money to think about it. But yeah, when you have to meet that general standard, it adds it adds strain and it can add cost. And it's really frustrating. Actually, I wish we didn't have to do that. <laughs> well, I actually do like clothing and I do like dressing up, but it is an added cost and it is something where a lot of people can get caught out in terms of spending more than they realise on going to work. Well, yeah, and I think for women too, I'm fascinated by this. It's, it's quite interesting to watch over the last sort of couple of decades as men have caught up, I think, in the amount of money they might spend on their look. It used to be a thing where a guy didn't really have to worry about his hair or anything like that, but there seems to be a trend towards being more conscious of their look. And so suddenly I've got male friends that have got very impressive collections of hair products that must cost like thousands of dollars <laughs> and fancy shoes and stuff like that. But yeah, it is. It's something when there's a compulsion that you need to meet that standard, especially when it matters for your career. You wouldn't want to be giving up a pay rise because you look like a dag, would you? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yes, that is definitely an argument. Now, we were talking before about property mm-hmm. because both of us like property. Yes. We were talking too about how there tends to be a view amongst a lot of younger people who are particularly those seeking fire, financial independence, retire early, that property is not the way to go. Mm, yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? And I see it both sides. I don't. I think you probably have too. People who are into shares say property sucks. People who are into property say shares suck. They each got their reasons. You'll often hear people say, oh, it's a roller coaster of the share market and that's why I like property. Yeah, my mother used to say that. Yeah. Um, she didn't understand shares. She didn't like shares. Yeah. My ex-husband didn't like shares. He didn't trust shares. Yeah. And there is that psychological thing, I think, with the property because you can touch it. Whereas I can't walk up to a window of Commonwealth Bank and point to it and be like, that's that's the bit that I own. It's a bit different. So there is that psychological safety. And it's an Australian thing. It's in our psyche, this idea of having land and space. I guess the issue that comes up is people think that it's got to be one or the other. I, I don't agree. And I think you're probably in a similar situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can be complementary. There's no reason to, to completely ignore one asset class unless there's a good reason for it. I think the argument that makes a bit of sense for young people especially is obviously getting into property ties up quite a lot of your cash flow potentially and can tie up quite a lot of your equity because you probably need a sizable deposit. And then if someone's not renting the property, you're going to have to make those mortgage payments. From that point, you end up with quite a skewed portfolio if your first thing is a property. I can understand why people say, well, I don't want to do it because it's going to be a big commitment and it would take a lot of shares to catch up. And there's also that question of debt. I mentioned before when I was 19, I was really confident about what kind of income I was going to have. If I was graduating as a 19-year-old now, I might be more cautious about taking on debt Yes, because I might not be as confident. So I think those personal circumstances and the economy has to come into play. Property has really been the making of me. Like, Yes, the shares have been great and the dividends are wonderful and they've built up over time, but property is the place where I've got the quickest leverage and the greatest equity growth quickly. I think that's what you get with property. I get really frustrated when I see things like, Oh, people tell you to buy property because it doubles every 10 years. No, it's because we get leverage. You put down the 20% deposit, but you get the 100% growth. It's just being able to hang on till the growth comes. And I think there's a lot of people that probably bought in the last few years that might be a bit worried right now if they haven't built up that equity and paid down that debt legitimately. But I don't know. It's not a reason to rule it out. You can work at any time. It's just about what your priorities are and what you're willing to do. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I like property and like I was saying before, My mother really liked property. She was a property investor, so grew up talking about property investment around the kitchen table. I was a devil with Monopoly as a kid. My sister (laughs) almost wouldn't play with me. My ex-husband wouldn't play with me. I'm not sure that my current husband ever wants to play Monopoly with me again. My youngest son had a meltdown last time we played Monopoly. I negotiate like there's no tomorrow with Monopoly. Love it. 
But I think that's key. Like when you are buying property, unlike shares, you can negotiate. Exactly. You and can every really negotiate different. a good deal. Yeah, and that's the thing. You know, like a share price, there's only so much flexibility in a share price. You're going to make an offer and it's going to be within a few cents that you get filled unless there's something dramatic happening on the market. But you're exactly right. A property, part of the joy is the hunt. You go looking for that fantastic deal. The hunt and the negotiation. Yeah, and it sounds like you love that negotiation, which is interesting too because we get that beaten out of us a little bit, I think. Kids are natural negotiators, you know, like I'll I'll eat one stick of broccoli and two carrots if I can have dessert, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) Like kids totally get that. And persistent negotiators. (laughs) (laughs) Are they? But somewhere along the way, a lot of people have that kind of, oh, it's embarrassing, you shouldn't negotiate. And it's to our detriment in pay negotiations, it's to our detriment when you're going to go buy a property. I really love that you enjoy negotiation and that you demonstrate it to your kids. And I think that's one of the coolest things you can do is get keep them excited about negotiating. But I, I suspect that might be why a lot of people get put off with property because the thought of actually having to have that negotiation can be a little bit uncomfortable and you do get pushed yeah. and not, they don't want to cave. So I kind of get why people might be worried about it. But the good news is you get better with practice. Exactly. And auctions. Auctions scare a lot of people. Yeah. And I was laughing because I was at a kid's birthday party and there was a dad of one of the kids and he was I wouldn't say he was quite the alpha male, but he was talking about what his negotiation strategy was going to be for a particular property. It was fascinating for me because a couple of weeks later, I went to an auction as a woman and there were quite a lot of other women who were there bidding and I bid successfully for the one. In fact, I was the only bidder and then I went into negotiations for what is where I'm now recording from, from this particular apartment. Mm. Um, But women are quite good at this space. They are quite good. They're good at talking to real estate agents they're good at picking up those signs about watching what other people are interested in a market Mm. I think though we lose self-confidence sometimes in our ability to do these things totally and that is partly because there's this sort of expectation that it's not a polite thing to do and you shouldn't do it and we worry that someone might get offended and get upset at what we're asking but I do think you're right with being able to tune into the person you're talking to, the, the dollars is not the only thing in the offer with property. Right? Mm-hmm. There's lots of things that you can talk about, such as timing. Some people want a longer period for settlement. If you can say, well, I'll give you whatever settlement period you want. It can be quick or it can be long. You know that people can value that, the percentage of cash you've got, how, how good your track record is. There's a lot of ways that you can become a more desirable purchaser, even if your offer is not as high as someone else's. And if you understand your leverage in those ways and how you're bringing value to that side of the deal. It's going to make the agent's life easier. It's going to make the seller's life easier. So you've got a better chance of being successful. And I think if you've got that confidence to draw on that and point out those good bits, the negotiation can feel a little bit more comfortable. Yeah, exactly. And even the non-monetary things, like it may have been a beloved family home. If you're going in there with a tape measure and talking about how you're going to do a knockdown rebuild, they probably don't want to sell to you. Exactly. Even if you give them a good price, if you're a developer. So Lacey, how can people find you, connect with you, buy your book and buy your courses? Well, the best thing to do is head to moneyschool.org.au and you'll find everything there. The book is all over the place. Cheapest place to get it is Big W so far for the frugal listers (laughs) (laughs) or grab it from the library. Good tip. (laughs) Yeah. For anyone who's interested in getting out of debt, I do have a free course on my site that's about getting out of debt. So do be sure to check that one out if you would need help with that area. Excellent. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for listening to this podcast. I really love comments. I love likes and I really love it when you follow and tell all your friends about this podcast as well. And make sure to buy a ticket to to Money Debates. When does that kick off? We've got some pre-recorded talks, the educational content starting on Monday the 24th of August. 
and then the debates start on the 31st of August. But don't worry if you get in a bit late. The, the content is available to the 20th of September. So anytime before that, you can get in and watch everything. Wonderful. And one of those pre-recorded talks is by me. Make sure you get in from Monday the 24th onwards to get your ticket so that you can have access to those talks. Yeah, fantastic. We'd love to see you in there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, so pleased to be and honoured that I was invited to be part of it. Thank you so very much. Oh, thanks for having me. Oh, listen to me, chillin' Anna. You were here about the eliminating of the negative and the accent on a positive. You've been listening to the Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And, of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. You got an accentuate the positive eliminate the negative latch on to the affirmative don't mess with mister in between